0: I read uh, recently about a story about a a professor at a a major university that a student in the class, who the professor just got through telling him he was an atheist, he was somebody that didn't believe in the Bible or supernatural or anything with God. And, And the guy said, well, what do you think or believe the future holds for man? If you don't believe in God, you don't believe in any of that, what do you think the future holds for man? And his answer was quick and forthright and surprising. He said, I'm not very optimistic. When I look at history, I discover man has not treated man very well. When I look at the contemporary world, I discover not much has changed. I'm not very hopeful about the future. He concluded by saying, I believe that the future holds for mankind certain destruction and potential annihilation. I have no reason to be encouraged about the future. In related vein, a German liberal theologian, Rudolf Bultmann, said, "...we cannot claim to know the end and goal of history. Therefore, the question of meaning in history has become meaningless." Now, let me say this. If I believed like the atheistic professor or Rudolf Bultmann, then I would agree with their conclusion 100%. If we have to depend on man... To save man, we are in a lot of trouble. Right? When you look at... uh, One of the things that I do now is I get up. You know, Eli has to be at school um, at dark 30. I don't know if you all know that or not. but We we have to leave the house before 7 o'clock to get Eli to school. And on some days, even when we leave before 7, we're running close to time. uh, But we leave before 7. And I've gotten to where... These are signs I'm getting older is I don't, the alarm clock doesn't wake me up anymore. Yeah, I just, I'm just i getting up, you know. I'm And so the, I get up, I go fix my cup of coffee, which I'm not a coffee drinker, except suddenly I'm drinking every day, so apparently I'm a coffee drinker. Uh, I get my cup of coffee, I get my uh, one-year chronological Bible, I'm reading, uh, reading God's story, read through it, and then I turn on, before I go wake up Eli, I turn on the Channel 4 morning news. And... It's depressing. Right? It's always something. I mean, I don't know if you noticed or not. I hadn't lived in Nashville area very long, only four and a half years. But every night somebody's getting shot. Every night somebody's stealing something. Man, when you get up in the morning, breaking news in North Nashville, you know, sometimes I'm convinced they're going to say, at 102 Rose Garden Lane, right next to Pastor Lyle Larson's house. You know, it's depressing. So, if we depend on that, I agree with these guys. But the scene in Revelation chapter 5 tells us that the world is not hurtling towards annihilation or disaster. And you could summarize the whole chapter with something I learned at First Baptist Church, in Dyersburg, Tennessee. Now, I'm going back to my home church to preach in two weeks. First time I've been there in over a decade to preach. And here's an interesting thing. I know you all know how old I am. So I'm getting old. Uh, I will be there the week that I turn 36 years old. It's amazing. I know it. Uh, you know, I've been here. I, I was 31. I was 31 when I got here. And I have aged at least five years since I've been here. All right? There's some days I age. But here's the thing that's kind of interesting. When I'm there, I will be there on the Sunday before I turn 36. I left Irishburg when I was 18. And for those of you that aren't real good with math, 18 plus 18 equals 36. So I will be there the week that I turn 36 and kind of mark that I have spent more than half my life away from my hometown. Because once I left, I didn't really look back. The Lord just had other plans. And I look back on those lessons I learned and you see just how applicable they are to deep truths of Scripture. And one of the songs that I learned is he's got the whole world in his hands. And the story of Revelation chapter 5 is the world is not rushing out of control. It's not running headlong towards disaster and annihilation. All things are under the sovereign and secure control of a great God because in heaven, God's Lamb sits upon the throne and God's Lamb is worthy. Amen? Here, here's something that, that our, our world likes to imagine what the end of the world is going to be like. Or what it, close to the end of the world could be like. Um, over the Christmas holidays, Susan and I, the boys were in West Tennessee. And we went to see Mission Impossible 4. Anybody seen Mission Impossible 4? A few of you? All right. Anybody seen the Mission Impossible TV show that used to come on? All right. It's the same plot, just newer toys and bigger buildings. All right? Taller buildings. But the plot of that movie, I don't want to spoil it, but the world almost ends. All right? A guy's trying to bring about nuclear destruction. And you know the countdown clock, right? They used to cut the wire at two seconds. Now they cut the wire or the bomb gets disarmed at point zero 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 one seconds, right? I don't know how they're going to keep making it in down to the wire, all right? But the world likes to imagine those kind of scenarios. And almost put in our mind, those kind of things happen all the time. You just don't realize it. God says that's not the way it's going to happen. And Revelation 5 pulls back the scene and to remind us that God's still in control. Look, Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Remember Revelation 4, the scene, you had God on the throne, you had the 24 elders in a circle around Him, you had the four living creatures, they were all worshiping God, praising God for who He is. Revelation chapter 5 continues with that, and it says, I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll, with writing on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I saw a might, I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. And I cried and cried because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look in it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop crying. Look. The Lion from the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has been victorious, so that He may open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse 6, Then I saw one, like a slaughtered lamb, standing between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent into all the earth. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When He took the scroll, the four living creatures and the elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. He made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, The lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor, and glory, and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Revelation chapter 5 teaches us that the Lamb of God is in control and the Lamb of God is worthy. Three things that Jesus Christ is Lord of, it tells us in this passage. First of all, Jesus Christ is Lord of history. He's Lord of history. Revelation 4 and 5 again are... One vision, two parts. Revelation 4 focuses on God the Father and creation. Revelation 5 focuses on God the Son and redemption. By creation and redemption, God has the right to do with the world as He wills. So God the Son in particular is active in bringing history to its appropriate summation. I mentioned Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was actually among a group of founding fathers that had a particular worldview that was called deism. Anybody know what deism is or was? Deism said that they believed in what they called the watchmaker God. That God created the watch and then He let it go. What they believed is God created the world. There was a God. There was a supreme being. He created the world and then He stepped back and just let it go as it ought to. What Revelation 5 is going to show us is that couldn't be farther from the truth. God created the world, and when the world was in desperation with nowhere else to turn, God stepped in on His own and worked to make it right and will bring about, in the final days, the end. Jesus is Lord of history because, first of all, of God's plan. There's the scroll, right? Where's God got the scroll? In His right hand. Why is the right hand important? Because it's the hand of authority. Some of you may remember this. Do you know what the word for left is in their language? You got any left-handed people here? Yeah, I'm sorry about what I'm about to say. Anybody know what the word for left is? Sinister. 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 (laughs) says more than you want it to say, some of you, alright? So left-handed people, that was not good. So the right hand was the hand of authority, okay? And he holds in it a scroll. Now, the scrolls are mentioned eight times in chapter 5. It's written on the inside. It's written on the back. It's written all over. It is what we call an epistograph, as you all know. <laughs> all right. Anybody talked about an epistograph lately? Okay. Tomorrow write out a sheet of paper on front and back and say, have you seen my epistograph? Here it is. What what is the difference between what you just described, the the deism and, and those philosophies that state that everything ultimately can become a god? Well, deism said that there was an ultimate being. In fact, if you looked at a lot of the Founding Fathers' original documents, they talk not as Almighty God, Creator of Heaven and Earth, father of Jesus Christ they talk about the supreme being or our creator Um, they believed in one central God that just created and afterlife and stuff was kind of nebulous in that whole deal it was just you make the best of your life now other religions that kind of say that everything has kind of got God endued in it and we all kind of become our own gods don't believe necessarily in a central supreme being they just believe in kind of the essence of God all around alright and both of them when butted up against the picture of Revelation 5 of God the Father on the throne and the Lamb Jesus Christ are inadequate Um, so you have God holding a scroll now the reason that this relates to deism is because in deism they say he doesn't care about the rest of the time he just kind of set it going. The scroll written on the front and back, lots of questions about what that is. It's sealed with seven seals, which means it is perfectly sealed up. It's not coming open in the mail as it's traveling. It is sealed, alright? Some people say it's the title, indeed earth. In other words, it's the uh, it's kind of... give earth when he, when he opens it and gives it to you. Some people talk about it as the last will and testament, or Ezekiel's book of woe from the book of Ezekiel, or the book that Daniel had that was sealed in Daniel 12, that Daniel was denied to read and that John had it opened. Whatever else it is, here's what I think the, the text is pretty clear on. It is the remainder of Revelation chapter 6 and following. When it starts to open, things start to come open and things start to happen. And so Jesus is, we'll find out, the one that's able to do that. But the remainder of the book, so what's on this, on this seal, are three important kind of themes. There is retribution for those that have turned their backs on God. Revelation 6, that's the seals. Revelation 8 and 9, it's the trumpets. Revelation 15 and 16, it's the bowls of judgment. The world said no to the Lord's leadership and God brings retribution. But in the midst of that, it's also a book of redemption. Chapter 7 especially notes the multitude of Gentiles and the Jews that are going to be saved. There's a silver lining of redemption against the backdrop of the clouds of judgment that are coming. And then chapters 21 and 22 tell us it's a book of restoration. Beautiful chapters. We'll get to at some point in our time together. Beautiful chapters of a new earth, a new heaven... A new Jerusalem just recreated everything. God, on the seals, on the sealed scroll, has these plans laid out. And He is going to bring them about. And Jesus is the one through whom He does it. Jesus is Lord of history because heaven had a problem. Know what happens in verses 2 and 4? What happens? God's got this sealed. And what's the problem? Nobody can open it. When it says nobody in the original language, it means nobody. No one. Not a single person. And the search has been going on. you think that was physical or was that authority? Those no seals were used to steal the right? Yeah, no, I, I think yeah. that it just means that no one was worthy to do worthy it. To yeah, and I think you have to think about, with all the Old Testament allusions that we've seen in Revelation already, references to the Old Testament, they're saying that Moses wasn't able. David wasn't able. Joshua wasn't able. Elijah wasn't able. Elisha wasn't able. You get the New Testament. Peter's not able. Paul is not able. The emphasis is on a universal search for anybody that has the authority to come and to take the scroll out of his hand and open it. Does that B? Huh? Is that B? He's Lord because of heaven's problem. Yeah. And here's what happens. John sees this. And what does John do? He cries. He cries. Why? Because it looks like God's plan has been forwarded. right? For a moment, it looks as if the plan's not going to come true. And John, John, you have to remember, we've read this so many times. Like John, just calm down. It's going to be all right, right? I mean, we look. hadn't you read the end of the book, John. I mean, you wrote it, but at this point, he hadn't. And so when he gets there, he's like, "There's something important on that seal, on that scroll. We got to find out." And nobody's able. And this angel keeps yelling. No one is able to open the scroll. And John starts to weep. The universal search turned up nobody. Somebody's got to be worthy, but nobody could be found. And then we see that Jesus is Lord because of His power. While that's going on, you get these elders. Remember the 24 elders from last week if you were here? Um, Twelve represented the Old Testament tribes, 12 represented the New Testament apostles in a representative fashion saying the entire body of God's people from all generations. One of the elders comes to John and says there's no reason to cry. He actually says quit your crying. Alright? Uh, anybody ever said that to a kid? Yeah. Huh? Dry it up. Come on. Come uh, on. My, mom, my, my grandmother used to have this saying, she'd say to me, You can get glad in the same pants you got mad in. Let's go. <laughs> all right? So, quit your crying. Now, it, that's what he says. He kind of says, "Why, Quit. The, the guy's almost kind of saying, It's still okay. Things are going to work out, all right? Um, and then he says, For the lion of the tribe of Judah, it had been foretold the Messiah would come from Judah. A lion represented strength, majesty, kingship. He says, the root of David. The Messiah will come from the line of David, the root of David, the source of all Messianic blessing. He says, He has prevailed, conquered, overcome, triumphed, won the victory over once and for all. As the lion, He's the strength of our salvation. As the root of David, He's the source of our salvation. So we see that Jesus is the Lord of history. It's God's plan. No one else can solve it. And Jesus is the only one that's able. Here's the second big point we see. Jesus Christ is the Lord of victory. When we come to verse 5, we see this enigma as the drama and redemption is played out. But we're unprepared for what we see as the solution. In verse 4, we're told about the root of David. We're told about a lion of Judah. Instead, who is the central figure that's going to open the scroll? Who's going to open it? What's verse 6 describe him as? A slaughtered lamb. One who looked like a slaughtered lamb. Now, now, let me just tell you, some people that draw this, they draw an actual lamb in there. That's not what the text actually says. It says one who looked like a lamb who had been slaughtered. Okay? It's using symbolic language here, but don't miss the symbolic language. Because a lot of the drawings I've seen of this picture will have a nice pretty lamb with some blood on it. You know what I'm talking about? Or, or a cross laid over the top of it. Is that what a slaughtered lamb is going to look like? No. No. It's going to be messy and beaten and bruised and disgusting. Now think about the scene you have here because it says among the ones around the one sitting on the throne and the four remember those four creatures the one that looked like an eagle and the one that looked like a man and the one that looked like a, an ox the one that looked like a lion Those are majestic looking things. The 24 elders dressed in white, got the crowns on their heads, sitting on thrones. They're majestic looking things. And then among them was a person who was disfigured and ugly and disgusting. Our world looks for and celebrates beauty and power and prestige. And yet at one of the most pivotal moments that John sees in the book of Revelation we see that the one who has power is the one who is maimed like he's been slaughtered don't miss the amazing fact that Jesus is powerful and Lord of the victory because he was slain because he was killed. What the powerful? Yeah, we we forget that. This is one of those times that I, I think in America we have become so captive, and partly because believers were the ones that built this country, we've become more and more captivated with the things of the world instead of the things of Christ. Um, is that a? No, just a. He was slain. Sorry, that's I all right. Get confused. Now, here, Here's the thing. Well, here's the thing. If you get confused and you don't get blanks, I'll give them to you at the end. Okay. <laughs> um, the word for lamb here is an interesting word. It's, it's the word um, that was... It was a special word, and it's used nine, uh, 99, 29 times in Revelation. 28 of those are used about Jesus. And the word used here is specifically used of a little pet lamb kept for days... Four days in the house before Passover. It's of the most vulnerable of all creatures that was kept for the moment of sacrifice. That's not the first time that the theme of lamb comes up in Scripture. the lamb team is rich there. Genesis 22, eight, when Abraham and Isaac, remember that story, take your son, your only son, the one that you love, and sacrifice him, and he takes him up there. And on the way up there, Abraham says, don't worry, Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb. In Exodus 12.5, when the Passover is being described, he says that then you are to sacrifice the lamb, and your lamb shall be without blemish. In Isaiah 53.7, it says that the servant of the Lord will be called like a lamb led to slaughter. And then in John: 129 it says, "Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So you have Jesus' victory in his weakness. That Jesus is also victorious, not only because of that, but because he is still alive. There's this interesting little thing. It says, "There was this lamb who was standing. A good understanding of that is that he has been there, there was a time when he started, and he will not end. He was standing at this point in history, and he will continue to stand. In the center of the throne stands a living, resurrected Jesus. No myth, fable, legend, or lie. He is alive, and he is showing it, his marks of his death, but he is alive. So he's victorious because he's still alive. He's also victorious because he's strong. Verse 6 says that he has seven. That word means perfect or complete. Horns. Horns in their their uh, society meant strength or power. Now why would horns mean strength or power? And They're hard. Great protection. Great protection. Who had horns? Rams. Rams. Who else? Ox. Ox. Bulls. Right? Mostly it was the dominant... Member of an animal had the horns for offense and defense and they were signs of strength. So when it says he has seven horns, it doesn't literally mean Jesus has got seven horns popping out of his head. That'd be a little freaky. Right? If you try to draw all this, you're going to freak out a little bit. You've got a slaughtered lamb with seven horns coming out. Okay? What it means is that he is perfect in His strength. Then it says He's victorious because He sees all. He is all-seeing or He knows all. However you want to write that on number four. Seven again is perfect, complete. Eyes mean knowledge. He sees everything. He knows all. He has perfect knowledge. He has omniscience. So it tells us that he is victorious there. Lastly, he's victorious because he's still in control. Here's the the dramatic scene. We don't get the drama that's there because we just kind of see it. But the dramatic scene is the one that is sitting on the throne is holding this scroll and nobody else can get it, right? Nobody else can take it. Nobody else can open it. And it just says this one who looks like he has been slaughtered. So the weakest one of the bunch that looks like the weakest... Walks up. It says he came. It means that he just matter-of-factly walked up and grabbed it, took it away. Now nobody can do that to God Almighty unless they are equal with God Almighty. I, I play games with my son sometimes. We we'll see if they can take things from me. Eli's not there yet. Now, he's closing the gap more quickly than I would like for him to close it. We arm wrestle. He's not there yet. He thinks he can get out of my holes. He's not there yet, right? It's only when he becomes equal in strength that you can take something from me. And Jesus walks up. And not it's not aggressive or mean. He just takes it. Somebody wrote this about this picture a little bit. Something that they thought about. with Maybe you've seen it somewhere. It could be sung, but I'm going to bless you tonight and not sing it. Like Cliff's (laughs) singing. Mary had a little lamb. His soul was white as snow. And anywhere his father sent, the lamb was sure to go. He came to earth to die one day, the sin of man to atone. And now he reigns in heaven above. He's the lamb of... Upon the throne. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the victory. Here's the last thing. He's the Lord of glory. 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 Verses 8-14 through are three songs of worship. Here's the interesting thing. The first song is the longest. The second shorter than the first. And the third shortest of all. In reverse order, the first song or choir, the first song has the choir that is the smallest, the second song's choir is a little larger, and the third is the largest of all. In heaven, we can see who sings and what they teach us. And the first thing we see is he is praised by the saints. That tells us there's a harp, an instrument of praise. And so the saints are there praising Him, singing to Him, giving a shout of victory to Him. They sang a new song. Um, it's interesting because um, somebody asked me one time, when we get to heaven, what do you think we're going to sing? Do you think, do you think we're going to sing victory in Jesus? Um, do you think we're going to sing... And they named off another song. I don't know. I can tell you what we are going to sing. Songs we ain't never heard before. <laughs> And you're going to have to like it or not, but that's what we're going to sing. All right? I mean, you're going to get up there and go, I don't think any of you are going to elbow the person next to you and go, Well, I do not ever heard this one before. I <laughs> wish we'd sing something else. No, one of those new songs. Another one of them new songs. No, because in heaven nothing is bad. That's right. And so they sang a new song, it says. All right? Now, new sing means it was new as in they hadn't heard it before. And it was new as in it redeemed. Uh, it was from a new time period. It says you are worthy to take the scroll. And to open its seals. Why? Because you were slaughtered. Now think about that in today's world. You are great because you were killed. You were great because you are weak. You are great because you are the lowest of the low. You are great because you were slaughtered. And because of that, you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. The golden bowls are the intercession of the saints. It's an amazing thing. Those golden bowls of intercession are a main thing in Scripture. It ought to remind us of the importance of the prayers of the people of God. You see this bowl in 1117 and 1118 and 137, 139, 1310, 1412, 166, 176, 1820, 1824, 198, and 29. 20, verse 9. The bowls are important. The prayers of the saints. And you see worship and praise going on all over the place. It says he is worthy because he is slain. Because he has purchased us, not by gold or silver or precious stones, but he has purchased us by his blood. The redeeming blood of the Lamb is no embarrassment in heaven. There are some churches that are embarrassed these days by the blood of Christ. They don't sing songs about it, they don't talk about it, they don't have discussions about it. Heaven sings about it. So we will too. No redeem he redeemed us from all over. It doesn't matter what race, tribe, culture you're from. It doesn't matter if you're short, tall, fat, skinny. It doesn't matter if you're beautiful or not by the world standard. It doesn't matter if your arms are long or short, you got five fingers or 25. It doesn't matter. No one is excluded. And then it says this, He made us kings and priests. We reign and we serve with Him and we will reign on the earth. So yet the saints praised him because he is worthy of all that has happened because of what he has done, and then it says he is praised by the angels, ten thousand times ten thousand, literally myriads of myriads, literally you can't count the number. And they say a sevenfold blessing. Now here's the interesting thing: we can't give him the first four things they talk about. To the Lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive. We can't give him more power than he's got. We can't give him more riches than he's got. We can't give him more wisdom than he's got. We can't give him more strength than he has. But we can give honor and glory and blessing unto his name. So the angels say that he has power and riches and wisdom and strength. And what he says is he deserves every bit of it and all that we can give as well. Then the last thing, is not just the saints, it's not just the angels. It says every creature on, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, or on the sea. There is not many places you can think of that aren't included in that list. Everywhere, no matter where they are. They give blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. A.T. Robertson called this the four great fields of life. Heavens, earth, under the earth, and the sea. And they give their praise to the one on the throne and to the Lamb. And if you ever needed a biblical validation to say amen, what happens in the midst of this worship? What do they say? What do they say, Cliff? They say amen. There we go. So some of you Sunday just practice biblical worship, All right, You can say amen. They hear the truth. They say, let it be. May it be so. Truly, truly, it is true. Here's the point. If the governor walked in tonight, it would be appropriate to stand up to give him honor. If the president of the United States walked in tonight, it would be appropriate for us to stand and even applaud to give honor. But if the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords walks into this room, standing up and clapping is woefully short. The only response is to get on our faces before the Lord and to worship. So let me ask you a question. Same question I asked last week. When's the last time you worshipped with abandon, unashamed, before the Lord?